This is the Education Gadfly Show. Do we overthink these things sometimes? <laughs> you know? People in education overthinking things never. <laughs> we don't Just do that. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Alyssa Schwenk of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest of the week, the Duchess of Sussex of Education Reform, Kimberly Sia, <laughs> CEO of KIPP Colorado. Thank you for having me, Alyssa. Now, Kimberly, did you watch the Royal Wedding this weekend? No, I wasn't able to catch it. See, my mother sent me a text message. We were talking about my mother earlier, but my mother sent me a text message at 6.30 being like, why aren't you up? And I was like, okay. Um, it was really early. Have, would you? you have watched it? Probably not. All right. no. And we're joined, Same. of course, Same. by Brandon Wright. Do you want to be Prince Charles, Prince William? There's a lot of princes here you can join from. You See, can choose from. The funny thing about this is all all this stuff is so covered mm-hmm. in all news that I know who all these people are. Like, I know what happened, even though, like, I went out of my way somewhat to not follow it. See, it's, that's how I approach Stranger Things, which and TV shows. It's everywhere. But, yes, and sports. Like, we could have had a Caps reference, but or I don't Or a LeBron know reference, enough. or a James Harden reference. Kardashians, all of these things, just so over. A negative Warriors reference. Wait, what did the... Uh, never mind. This isn't the pop culture. Oh, that's, that's sad. I love... Actually, I like Aisha Curry better than Steph Curry, but <laughs> that's mostly because of Instagram. Uh, but as Mike tells me every single week that I try and derail the whole podcast, this is the Ed Reform podcast, so let's play Ed Reform Update. All right, welcome back to the show. So, Kimberly, you are the CEO of KIPP Colorado, and... We at Fordham recently came out with a report on charter school deserts, so where there are pockets of high-poverty students who don't have access to a charter school. And something that we noticed about what's happening in Colorado and Denver specifically is that KIPP is being really, I think, thoughtful and strategic about where kids are going. And Brandon and I both live in D.C., which is a fast gentrifying city where a lot of kids are actually being pushed out to the suburbs um, and they don't have the same access to schools of choice that they have inside D.C. city limits. So we were really curious to just get your perspective and just hear how you guys like started noticing these trends with uh, where your students are coming from. Sure. So in Denver, the population has been growing Mm -hmm. dramatically over the last five years. And so that's been a great space for charters. We've been able to expand there. And then they started to see projections that the population was was flatlining and that Mm -hmm. there wasn't as much growth. And we as an organization, we weren't feeling that as much. But in speaking with our families, we started to notice that they were sharing stories with us of having to drive long distances Mm -hmm. to come to the schools. And so started investigating that a little bit more, talking to families about where they were coming from, learned that they're driving anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours one way to come to school. Just Um, to get a great education. Yes. And I will name... One thing in in Colorado is that it is an open enrollment state. So families, anyone in Colorado can go to school in any district in Colorado. Mm -hmm. The entire state, wow. The entire state, Mm -hmm. exactly. So charter or traditional public school. And so that's great. Families have that level of choice. With that also comes the need for transportation. So mm-hmm. you have to be able to to do that. We pulled our numbers and we serve about 2,000 students and found that 10% of our families do not have a Denver zip code. So that's not an insignificant number yeah. of families. And what we started learning as we sat down with families was one of the main reasons they continue to make that drive is because there's not a great school in their mm-hmm. neighborhood. And so they, um, some of them tried out the school in their neighborhood and then came back to KIPP. Some of them just had talked to their neighbors and, and, and their neighbors said, don't send your child here. Mm-hmm. And we also started to realize that if we really wanted to continue to serve students who qualify for free and reduced lunch, many of our students are students of color, we 
wanted to go where they were living. Mm -hmm. And so sat down and started having house meetings with families, some of whom were current KIPP families and some of whom were neighbors who said, look, here's the story of what's happening in my neighborhood. And here's why we would like Mm -hmm. a better choice for our schools. Mm -hmm. So have you guys opened schools in suburbs? Like where are you in your kind of expansion plan? Yes. So we haven't opened any schools yet. Okay. Um, Last December, our board, we started to do some research around where where Mm -hmm. our families were going, where were the biggest pockets of our families. Mm -hmm. And we found north of Denver in the Outer Ring suburbs, Commerce City, Westminster, Mm -hmm. uh, Mapleton. We started to see that families were going in those areas. And so started sitting down and our board in December approved Mm -hmm. to find a district that uh, we, where we thought we could put in an application. And so we've really been exploring the Adams 14 school district mm-hmm. in Commerce City and are working with families right now to put together an application to submit to their board in July. That's and awesome. would you be the only, so, so like in these places you've explored, are there any charter schools there? There, So in Commerce City, there is one charter school. It was authorized by the school district a long time ago. And then the district got into some trouble in terms of their performance. So in Colorado, there's a school performance framework. There's an accountability clock. And through that process, the district and this charter made a decision that they could go to the state authorizing board called the Charter School Institute or CSI. <laughs> and so as um, that was not a great relationship. Right. So charters actually don't have a good reputation mm. in this school district. And so not only are we fighting a school district that has many struggles that they are trying to work through right now in terms of their performance, mm-hmm. the community has not had a great experience with mm-hmm. charter schools. And so our approach towards that is then to really work with families to make it about kids and, mm-hmm. and families and what they want for their school. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, you talked about reputation. And I think uh, we noticed, you know, we work in Ohio, which has a really challenged reputation frequently around charter schools for a host of reasons. But we actually, the Fordham Institute uh, has an authorizing shop that authorizes a bunch of really great schools throughout the state, including uh, the KIPP Ohio schools. Um, but I also wanted to ask you a little bit about perception, because in the charter advocate community, you kind of hear two things that become challenges to perception. One being that charters only serve low-income students, um, and that becomes sort of a political coalition building challenge. But also, you know, as you're going into suburbs, like suburban parents sometimes have a very fixed, like we bought this house for the schools, like there is no poverty here, um, sort of mindset or blindness around um, both poverty in their community, but also the performances of the schools in their community. And have you run into any of those challenges as you sort of seek to move outside the quote unquote traditional like city urban charter school mentality? We actually haven't. And I think that is namely because so many families are getting priced out of Denver Mm -hmm. and because about 90% of our families qualify for free and reduced lunch, Mm -hmm. they're moving into neighborhoods that also have higher levels Mm -hmm. of poverty. And so that is coupled with the fact that the schools that are available for those families are not meeting their needs. And Mm so a large portion of our families are Spanish speaking uh, in this particular school district. The families do not feel that they're uh, supported in both their culture Mm -hmm. and and being able to speak Spanish, but also in the supports that their children are learning as they're emerging bilingual students. Mm -hmm. And they're really trying to capture both English and Spanish Mm -hmm. in in a proficient way. And what is happening in these neighborhoods is there's um, the the outer ring suburbs of Denver. There's actually a it's kind of a place where 
affluence is skipping. So you have you have Denver, okay. then you have the southern part of Adams County that is the higher need area uh-huh. in terms of just the families who live in that area. And then because there's open land, development is happening further north. So it's like a donut. It's exactly. That's okay. exactly what it's like. And so you have this actual ring outside of Denver that is also outside of where more mm-hmm. development and money is going towards. Mm-hmm. Your, uh, your explanation of your sort of exploration of where you might locate a school um, outside the city implied to me right, that there's sort of um, a potential demand barrier. But are there other barriers, state, district, mm-hmm. to opening schools in these suburban areas? Yes. So the biggest barrier would be facilities, mm-hmm. both from an access standpoint. So not only are these school districts um, not having ch- charters, but they actually are losing their own students. So one of the school districts that we're looking at, they 30% of their students don't go to school who reside in that district, don't go to school in that district. As a comparison point- Where are they going? It, Just open enrollment? Open enrollment. Okay. So any other districts, I, I would venture to guess many of them are coming- to Denver. Denver. Um, and oftentimes that's because those families work in Denver. So okay. it's also easier to, to move your children that way. Uh, within one county, Adams County, there are multiple school districts within a 15 to 20 minute drive. So also if you're a parent and you work in a different mm-hmm. school district, it's pretty easy that your okay. child might go to school there. As a comparison point in Denver public schools, about 7% of families leave the district. So that's a pretty big gap. Mm-hmm. That means that there's buildings that don't have kids in them. Mm-hmm. So in Denver, they are filled to capacity charter. There's a great relationships mm-hmm. in, in sharing buildings with charter. There's co-location between district run schools and charter schools. We are not seeing that as we're beginning to explore outside of Denver. So that becomes a facility access issue, but then there's also the facility financing issue. Mm-hmm. So the per pupil in the communities outside of Denver is also lower than what okay. it is in Denver. Um, and due to the way the funding formula is set up in Colorado, a lot of our funding is beyond the state mandated per pupil mm-hmm. is dependent upon mill levy taxes. Okay. And so that property sure. taxes and how those pass, the districts that we're looking at, they haven't passed any mill levies. Mm-hmm. So you're at the base of the base yeah. in terms of what you're mm-hmm. able to afford. A plus to that is that land is cheaper outside mm-hmm. of Denver. Square footage is cheaper right. outside of Denver. And we still have to find money to finance it either way. So what's happening in Denver is sort of this priced out phenomenon isn't unique to Denver. It's happening in D.C. We're seeing it with a bunch of kids going to Prince George's and Montgomery County. Um, San Francisco, I think, is a like almost um, absurd situation right now in terms of how expensive mm-hmm. property is within the city. Um, it's happening in many communities, um, in many urban communities all over the country. What sort of advice for CMOs, for advocates in these communities who may be either beginning to notice these trends or may have these trends under them that they haven't quite picked up on yet? Like what advice would you tell people who are in these um, communities that are experiencing such rapid gentrification? I would really push for there to be a community conversation Mm -hmm. about it. I would, you know, if you have an advocacy group, if you have a charter management organization, if you have a human support services group, whomever Mm -hmm. is talking to families as this transition is happening between neighborhoods to really find out what they want in schools and what is available to them. What do they have access to? And then using that as kind of your ground game Mm -hmm. for how you push up on policy and on advocacy, especially in areas where there haven't been a lot of charter schools. I think Mm -hmm. that that's often, there's a resistance to what you don't know. And so if 
someone who runs a charter school network or someone who believes that there's this huge privatization happening of all of our local public schools, Mm -hmm. that message coming as a top-down message is not as well received Mm -hmm. as a ground-up message from families and kids that Mm -hmm. says, look, we just want a really great school and I want it in my neighborhood and I want it to be Mm high-performing. It sells a lot better. It's an excellent advice to end on. So, Kimberly, that's all the time we have today for Ed Reform Update, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And up next, everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. And we're back. Welcome to the show, Amber. Thank you, Alyssa. Now, did you get up at like 6 a.m. on a Saturday oh, to no watch the Royal Wedding? No way. But of course, I saw the photos <laughs> and, you know, heard about it later. So many photos. Saw the simple but elegant dress. That's what I think it was. I did like the dress. <laughs> I, I had some edits. We won't turn this into my fashion yes, podcast again. Right. Mike would... Um, be a little disappointed in me, but it was pretty. And yes, it was. I definitely got a text message at six, a call actually at six thirty in the morning from my mom, being oh, like, yeah. "Are you wow. up yet? You haven't responded <laughs> to my text serious? messages." And well, my my sister you know. and I were together, and we're like, "Please go away." Yes, I mean, as females, we just we love to look at the dresses. You know, that's just the way it goes. And it seemed like there were some mean things said about dresses, which really bothered me. Right? It was everyone was it Pippa's dress that somebody tried to compare to an Arizona tea can or something because it was green and colorful and i'm like really people it's a beautiful dress it does not look like an I arizona tea can did like is, is arizona ice now that still around? That, i can see that all right i'm terrible anyways anyhow not I, a fashion podcast yes it's not um so what do you got for us this week all right i've got a cool uh experiment i love these uh research studies that use make use of an experiment so randomized control samples <laughs> all about it um well we know that a lot of states are including a measure of student absenteeism in their ESSA plans for their so-called fifth indicator. So many states are really keen to figure out how to strengthen student attendance. (laughs) So this study, conducted by Todd Rogers at Harvard, examines the results of a randomized experiment whereby parents were provided information about their child's absences or not to see if that information actually reduced their child's absences. Okay, simple enough. Okay. Um, the study was conducted in the school district of Philadelphia, the eighth largest district in the U.S. The sample included parents of over 28,000 high-risk kindergarten through 12th grade students. They excluded the homeless students, the students with special needs, as well as those whose parents had sent an opt-out form. And then they defined at-risk students as those who had been absent three or more days more than the modal student in their student in their school and grade level. Modal and, being most frequently. That's yeah. right, okay. most frequently. And those with no more than over two standard deviations more days absent than the mean student in their school and grade. Because when they talked to the district, they felt like a lot of those kids had actually left the district and just never notified the district because they'd been absent so many days. Mm-hmm. Um, or they were experiencing some grave challenge that would make them less responsive to the intervention. So, so if the average kid missed five days in their grade... If they missed nine days, they were included in this sample. Right. Okay. And then they randomly assigned households in equal numbers to a control group or one of three personalized treatment conditions. They received up to five mailed postcards throughout the 2014-2015 year. And then this is kind of how they look. So the first postcard was just a simple reminder that students had fallen behind when they're absent and parents can help. So it was just kind of like a generic message. And the second one added special information about their child's total absences. So literally had that simple reminder and then said how many days your kid's been absent. 
And then the third one added yet another data point that included the modal number of absences among that child's classmates so they could sort of relative comparison purposes. Okay. And then the control group received no other information other than what they might normally get from the school in a typical you know, year, report card, whatever. Okay. Um, and they found that compared to the control group, students in the total absences condition were 10% less likely to be absent and students in the relative absences condition were 11% less likely. But the students in the simple reminder group were just 8% less likely to be absent, basically showing that the additional information helped. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then they analyzed whether siblings in the household were impacted, which is kind of cool, and found that those focal students, so those are the kids that were actually in the experiment, um, if they were assigned to the simple reminder, there was no evidence of spillover effects on their sibling. Mm-hmm. But if they were, again, if their sibling had received those other two types of reminders mm-hmm. that had a little bit more information, um, the spillover effects on the siblings were nearly as large as on the treated student. Oh, wow. The focal student. Yeah. Uh, finally, they find no evidence of treatment effects varying by student grade level or by gender, race, or total absences in the previous year. Mm-hmm. And then they tried to look at test scores, but they weren't able to do it. The data limited uh, them from, from doing that. And then they wanted to survey parents to make sure that they actually receive because they, they're mailing these things. They want to make yeah. sure that the parents receive them. So at the end, they surveyed them and the parents had responded that they did receive the reminders. Most of them had remembered the reminders. They responded affirmatively. Mm-hmm. Um, and they then asked them questions about how they felt about absences and the importance of them. And they find that parents um, did not view how they viewed the importance of absences if they'd only gotten the reminder card, the simple reminder card. Mm. But they did see a little difference if they'd gotten the other types of cards. Mm-hmm. So at the end, they try to say, huh, I wonder what's going on here. And they hypothesize that parents just might not realize how many days their kids yeah. are missing over the span of an entire school year. It's a day here, a day there. Yeah, it just kind of accumulates. And then if you just give them a little bit more information, they could change their yeah. beliefs and help their kid get to school. You know, this does remind me of a news article I was reading this morning. Um, I used to live in Germany, and Germans still amuse me endlessly. Um, it was about how since... You can't have unexcused absences in U.S. or Germany. And parents frequently, you know, pull kids out of school like two days before maybe spring break so Mm, you can get cheaper airfare. Uh, They had people at a couple of the busiest airports in Germany stationed. And if they saw a school-aged family like the two days before (laughs) a school vacation, like they they intercepted them and were like, is this an unexcused absence? Like this is actually not something that you should be doing. Oh my boy, that Um, sounds like an expensive thing for a school district to do. These were school district personnel? No, it was uh, the... I mean, in Germany, the setup is different, oh, but oh, it's, right. um, okay. I don't think it was like school district personnel. I think <laughs> right. it was like, like well, not police, but like some sort of like authority wow. from the uh, okay. the state. Well, that's taking it seriously. Yeah. yeah. Just, it's a very German way of approaching yeah. that problem, I as mean, Checker might say. Oh my gosh. And so Amber? <laughs> yes. Amber, just uh, clarify. So uh, essentially these interventions reduced absences for these kids who are absent more often uh, between 8 and 11%. That's right. Yep. So, like, if somebody missed ten days, it'd be about one day. If if somebody missed twenty, yeah, it's it it's the difference of two. like two days. Yes, mm-hmm. that's right. Yep. I do wonder what it'd be like to combine this with uh, sort of the text message nudges and interventions that we've been seeing be effective with students. Yeah, uh, kind of in the moment. No, I think that's right. I mean, I feel like I've done about four of these now, where there are these small sort of interventions that basically give you know someone more information, whether it be a student mm-hmm. or a parent or a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a huge intervention. It's not a costly intervention either. Mm-hmm. 
Um, in this case, they did have to mail them, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not just sending a um, an email. You're actually sending post, paying for postage. Um, but still, I mean, given that, you know, it's relatively inexpensive compared to everything else we try to do mm-hmm. to help with absences, you know, whether that's, you know, hire more school counselors to talk to kids about, you know, how they're dealing with mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z, which is obviously not a bad idea. Um, but it seems like this one, on the scale of all the things we could be doing to keep kids in school, this one seems pretty low cost um, and 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 effective yeah. compared to what we've seen with other interventions. So I feel like, I mean, do we overthink these things sometimes? <laughs> like, you know, People in education overthinking things? Never. Like, we don't do that Just tell ever. parents how many days their kids have been absent, right? I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brandon, Amber, what were you going to say? Uh, yeah. yeah, so um, I totally agree. And uh, obviously being in class more uh, is a good thing. Um, have there been any studies that show sort of what academic effect being in class one, two, three, ten more days has on a kid? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there have. I can't reel it off the top of my head. Sure, sure, um, sure. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I think we know in general that, you know, obviously you can't learn if you're not in the, in the school. Yeah. Um, right. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, and that's a great, it's a great question. I, I know I've seen that study before. Um, where they've tried to say, you know, X amount of days equals X more re- recouped learning days. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think in general, I mean, I, th- I think we all agree that the more kids are in school, you know, mm-hmm. the, the higher their chances of actually learning something, assuming that, you know, they're, they're in a class where a teacher actually is, is teaching and, mm-hmm. and is somewhat not effective. chronically absent her, right, or not, herself. Yes, true. Um, the last thing that I kind of wanted to pull out is you mentioned that it did not vary um, by gender or age. So this isn't a case yeah. of, you know, like, High schoolers are, you know, maybe going off and telling their parents they're going to school and yeah, going somewhere else. Yeah, I was actually else, surprised was by that. Yeah, I thought for sure, like, we might see, you know, potentially more impact with the older kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you think, well, how much, you know, what's your theory of action there? Would, mm-hmm. could, could be that parents have actually less influence, right, over their kids as they, as they get older. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it was equally effective across, across the grade level. So, mm-hmm. that's, well, not bad. Very cool little study. <laughs> Thanks for bringing it to our attention, yes, Amber. Indeed. And that's all the time we have for this week's Gap Play Show. Till next week. I'm Brandon Wright. And I'm Alyssa Schwenk for the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gap Play Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.